Ready. This is your Professor Debbie. Welcome to True Crime University, where we have intellectual discussions about crime. This is a class for mature audiences with mature language and subject matter. Our purpose is to learn about criminals, not glorify them. And my aim, as always, is education. All of the information I have is from public sources. Hello, class. How's everybody tonight? Hopefully, you are ready to finish up old Gerard Schaefer here. I don't know about you, but I am mighty tired of talking about this asshole. Before we get into this, I have a correction from last episode. Remember I mentioned Patrick Kendrick? He's the author of the main book that I used for this, and he interviewed Schaefer, as we'll talk about later on. But I mistakenly said that he dated one of Schaefer's victims, and that's not true. I just saw something and misinterpreted it, so I just wanted to clarify that. Just a quick recap. When we left off, he was in prison. In December of 1972, he appeared in court, and he got, in my opinion, a very generous plea bargain deal. He pled guilty to one count of aggravated assault, and this would be tying up Nancy and Pam. Remember, they got themselves loose, and ran away. Well, he got sentenced to one year in prison for that, and this was December. So then, to uh, rub salt in an open wound, because he's already getting away with, literally getting away with murder, he asked the judge, well, your honor, is it okay if I start my sentence after the holidays so that I can help my mother and wife move? At uh, this time, his dad had divorced his mom quite a while ago, and his wife, Teresa, was currently living with his mother. So the judge is like, sure, why don't you come in to start your sentence on January 15th of 1973? So on January 15th, he reported in to the Florida State Prison. And luckily for us and the rest of the world, he would never get out. All the shit he'd done was finally starting to catch up with him. And this would be mainly in part thanks to Lucille Place. Remember Susan's mother? Susan and Georgia, who he killed in September, just a few months before. So he was now under investigation for those two murders. And in April of 1973, police searched his residence, which was actually his mother's house. And interestingly, he had his own room in this house that neither his mother or his wife were allowed into. And the police found a veritable shitload of incriminating things in this room. I have a list of them. If I were to sit here and read off every item, it would take like an hour. So I'm just going to tell you what the highlights were. And these include 13 knives, one machete, 11 different guns of all types, numerous bullets, a vial containing two human teeth, a book on the history of torture, and it was inscribed to John from Cindy. Remember, that was his first girlfriend. Two large boxes of pornographic books, rope, diaries with stories and fantasies, newspaper clipping about Lee and Carmen, the victims, a passport 
in the name of Colette Goodenough, an Iowa driver's license belonging to Colette, three other types of identification belonging to Colette, a birth certificate in the name of Barbara Wilcox, a four-inch piece of human bone, a three-inch piece of human bone, jewelry belonging to Mary Briscolina, a purse belonging to Susan Place, three pieces of Lee's jewelry, two gold teeth and a shamrock pin belonging to Carmen, an address book belonging to Colette Goodenough, an envelope addressed to Jerry Shepard, remember that was his alias, and the police tallied that all of these items, like jewelry, documents, etc., belonged to 38 different women who were either missing or murdered. In addition, there were over a 100 pages of written material. And I'm going to detail these a little bit because, well, for one thing, they're very interesting, also very disturbing, but important in trying to figure out what made him tick. There was a five-page story detailing the killing of an unnamed female, a four-page letter with a story taking place in the Hamburg, Germany railroad station, which is about the execution of a female, and the uh, hangy was peeing during this execution. A one-page story or letter dated 1760 London about a female hanging. A three-page story of a German woman hung at the gallows with details about her pooping while being executed. A one-page letter or writing, quote, describing in detail the proper method for execution and for mutilating a female body, end quote. A three-page type story of a woman being hanged, and interestingly, the woman in the story was named Carmen. An eight-page typed story, which was a vivid description of a woman being hanged. You notice a the theme here? And she was wearing a black chiffon dress, high heels. She was also molested after death and dumped in a canal. Remember that Carmen, on the night that she was killed, or last seen, was wearing a black dress and high heels. An 11-page handwritten story of an executioner named Jimmy, who killed a young girl, and also in the story were drug pushers who, quote, all ought to be hanged. Quote. And in this story, the girl's hands were cuffed behind her, and Jimmy, the executioner, pulled her teeth from her mouth with pliers. A three-page type story called, this one had a title, Eleanor Hussey, the Irish harlot refused to hang. It was about a girl about to be hung who jumped off the gallows and ended up breaking her neck. A one-page story about a woman killed and dumped into a grave. A three-page story about a woman hanged by Nazis. A three-page story about hanging women or a woman. A three-page story about somebody named Roberto, revolutionaries, and a garroting cord. You know what garroting is. Index cards with poems about hanging women. I don't know if he wrote these poems himself or got them from somewhere else. This one's very interesting, and I have no idea where he would have gotten this from. 
and it, it's simply listed as condemned female attire, 1955, Mrs. R. Ellis, in her death was described, and the date on it was August. If that name rings a bell for you, um, it, there's probably a reason. Ruth Ellis was the last woman hanged in the United Kingdom for shooting her husband. This happened in July of 1955. I think it's too much of a coincidence that he has this hanging attire labeled August 1955, Mrs. R. Ellis. If he really got the actual clothes belonging to Ruth Ellis, I would love to know how he pulled that off. This is way before eBay and murder bilia sites and, and things of that nature. A one-page story about a hanging woman wearing a green skirt and waterproof underwear. That's that underwear he's fascinated by. A bunch of tight pages about various hanging females, a lot of varied ones, one of who was a, quote, lady paying the price because she is a tramp, end quote. Drawings of hanging women and also drawings of women hanging, shot, and sitting on the toilet. A letter written to somebody named Buddy, which describes the killing of a woman and mutilating of the body in the Sahara. 37 black and white pictures of naked women hanged and mutilated. An envelope addressed to Schaefer with an Australian stamp that contained 54 black and white pictures of naked and mutilated women. Another envelope addressed to Schaefer from Australia, dated 1971, with 13 black and white photographs of nude women hanged and decapitated. Pictures of what appeared to be a woman hanging from a tree. Upon further examination, it was found to be actually a man, and upon further, further examination, was found to be Schaefer himself. And perhaps most bizarre and disturbing were the documents and identifications of several dudes. Yeah, dudes. Stephen Kendix, Michael Angeline, Kirk Duckwitz, Kenneth Canshaw, Ted Green, and Dennis Cottle. All of these guys were reported missing, and Michael Angeline was found on Hutchinson Island at some later time with both of his hands cut off. So given the fact that he was in possession of these IDs, kind of suggests that he killed them, but why? There's no answer. It was never, of course, he never admitted to it, never discussed it with anybody, never even wrote any stories about men being hanged or, or men killed or, or anything. So that may be one of the strangest parts of this case. And the reason I just sat there and read all that repetitive nonsense about hanging women was I, I wanted you to get the idea of just how invested, maybe is the word, or obsessed with hanging women. I've never seen or heard of anybody so obsessed with such a particular detail of sex or murder or anything, even Albert Fish. Fish was more of like a pervert with varieties, you know, interested in a little of this, a little of that, a little bit here of this and that. And this dude was like ropes, bondage, hanging, poop, pee, all together, like all the time. And it's just odd to see that much of a concentration on 
one particular paraphilia. That is a paraphilia, and we're going to address that later in psychology. But when he was asked about these findings, he had an answer for everything. He said all of the weapons are legal. Some of them are even war souvenirs. He claimed that he bought the purse. It was described as a hippie purse. I don't really know what a hippie purse is, but I'm thinking maybe it was like a, had fringes on it. Can you picture what I'm talking about? It belonged to Susan Place, and Susan's mother even identified it. She's like, that is Susan's purse. Schaefer gave it to Teresa, and Teresa's like, no, this is my purse. And I don't know if she was that deluded and brainwashed by him, or he told her to lie about the purse. I don't know. But he claimed that Lee gave him her jewelry as a gift, which of course makes sense that you would give a dude women's jewelry. Like, I don't know what they were. I think bracelets, something that he couldn't wear. The craziest. I mean, he's not only a liar, he's a bad liar. His stories are so ridiculous that they're just laughable. As far as the newspaper clippings on the two murders, he said he found them and kept them, quote, on a whim. That'd be like me just taking a stroll down the street and being, oh, what's this? Oh, it's a newspaper clipping. Let me see. Oh, what a coincidence. It happens to be about the murders of two women who I just happen to know. How convenient of somebody to cut it out and put it on my street. I think I'll hang on to this. No, that's bullshit. That'd be like when I supervised people on probation. I wanted to smack people when they would tell me this. They would get arrested for having drugs. And, you know, I'd lecture them. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing with crack or whatever it was? And they would say, well, you know, I was walking in my apartment building projects, you know, low, low income housing, and I just happened upon some crack or a bag of cocaine or whatever. And I thought, oh, you know, I better take this and safeguard it because I don't want any kids getting into this. I'm not shitting you. They would sit there, look me straight in the face, and tell me this story. I'm like, do you think I am fucking stupid? So, anyway, the things that were written down in the journal, the plans or fantasies about murder, he claimed that he saw a shrink in 1968, and this shrink encouraged him to write down his fantasies. That's about the only story that's even a little bit believable. Now, I, of course, have been open about my mental health history. I have gone to numerous, numerous shrinks, probably 10 times more than he has. And I don't remember ever talking about disturbing thoughts or fantasies, but I can remember a couple of them advising me. I don't even know why. It doesn't matter. But about journaling, about getting my thoughts and feelings out on paper. And if you go to a therapist, if you've been to a therapist, or maybe you are one, you may have heard this also, that people with issues or problems are encouraged to write down their feelings. I mean, I still think it's bullshit, but it's, like I said, out of all of these, the only thing that even remotely makes one iota of sense. And to top it off, oh my god, he's such a fucking... Ugh. The teeth, the human teeth they found, he claimed that they were planted there by his ex-roommate, John Dolan. Remember I when I talked about him, I said remember him because he's going to come up later. His ex-roommate planted teeth amongst his belongings. 
If he were not so horrific and monstrous and evil, this would be downright hilarious. So his trial for the murders of Susan and Georgia was scheduled for September 19th. In the meantime, he could not keep his mouth shut. The prosecutor, Robert Stone, questioned his cellmates about what he had said while in jail awaiting trial. And he, fortunately for the prosecution, had said quite a bit. A cellmate named Emerson Floyd recalled that while in jail, Schaefer kept writing down his stories and he would read them to him. And this dude, Emerson, said he was disturbed by them. That's how horrific they were. He said they were, quote, mostly just brutal and included, quote, some hair-raising things, unquote. These um, writings were not of the penthouse form variety. And no, I've never seen that, of course. I'm just imagining what's in there. But these are the type of writings that would raise another uh, cellmate's hair. So in June, Prosecutor Stone talked to Spencer Buckaloo, who had been in the cell with Schaefer for about a month. And Spencer was more forthcoming with details about what they talked about. He said that Schaefer, quote, talked about knocking off people and shit like this, end quote. And he said, quote, he was talking about this woman he killed, you know, over in Vietnam in the shit house. He killed her and fucked her and knocked her down, end quote. Now, as we know, Schaefer was never in Vietnam. And Stone said, wait, he killed her and then he screwed her? And Spencer said, right. He pushed her back down in the shit thing and put the lid down. He was a creep, end quote. I'm thinking he's talking about a, uh, an outhouse when he said shit house. That's, that's the only thing that makes any sense. And then he said, quote, he told me all about the, all about these foreign countries he used to go to before he was married. He used to work for a man in Africa, Spain or something, some knockoff man, told me he used to be a knockoff man over here, used to knock off whores, told me about this one whore who he knocked off in Fort Lauderdale, end quote. I'm presuming knockoff man is a hitman. And I, <laughs> I like the, uh, the saying, how he says, Africa, Spain, or something. So Stone is pumping him for more details about what Schaefer said. And he said, quote, let's see. He said he was a policeman, some kind of cop over there. Says she was a prostitute and she was holding out on the man. And he kind of took her out for a date. And they said they was going to this cafe. And she said, hey, this ain't the way to the cafe. And he said, I know it, baby. You just shut up. And they went down to the swamp, some swamp that was there, down by a boat ramp where you put a boat in the water, an airboat or something. And he got behind there and he says, I'm going to kill you. Do you want it fast or slow or what? Now he had a gun and this wire thing with two fingers in it, two little circles in it. And he got behind her, put it around her neck and choked her to death. She started shitting all over, and she died, and he said he was drunk. He took her out and put her in the trunk, and he woke up, and he fucked her, and he cut her head off and said, how do you get rid of the body so no one ever finds them? He said, the swamp does miracles, end quote. That's all one sentence. 
talk about a run-on sentence. And that could be a fantasy, but it has a ring of truth to it from what we know about his murders and his victims. And he did suggest at other times, either in conversations or letters, that he had disposed of women by putting them in the swamp. Remember, this was the Everglades and feeding them to alligators. Then he claimed that he killed people for other people. And Spencer said, quote, he just said he made a lot of money doing this kind of shit, knocking off these prostitutes, queers, homos, and different things like that. Let them shit in their britches and all, and fucking them in the ass and all kinds of shit like this. He just liked to get down to the nitty gritty, end quote. Yeah, I don't think that he ever killed anybody for somebody else as a, as a hitman. He just does not strike me as somebody who would be in that for money, nor do I think he ever killed anybody with somebody else. He was definitely a solo killer. But the words he used are important. He said that he liked to kill, quote, prostitutes, queers, homos, and different things like that. Not people, but things. And that is very important, that terminology he used. So he went on trial in September of 1973. He did not testify in his own behalf, but his main defense was that he was framed by, I don't know who, some big conspiracy. And at first, his wife, Teresa, and his mother came to court and supported him. But then eventually, Teresa had had enough of his bullshit. And this is pretty humorous. Teresa only came to see him in prison once. That was in November of 1973. And the reason for that was to sign divorce papers. So after that, she married his attorney, Elton Schwartz. He was 45. So he was a good 20 years older than Teresa. Definitely old enough to be her, her father. In October, he was convicted on two counts of first-degree murder, and received two concurrent life sentences. He would have got the death penalty, but at the time, Florida was having a moratorium on capital punishment. The judge for the trial, Judge Trowbridge, would later say in an interview that there was, quote, evidence that he was responsible for about 30 other girls' deaths across the country, end quote. So most people connected with his case, meaning law enforcement, writers, etc., all think that he killed many more people than his quote-unquote official number. Like most convicted criminals, he filed appeals, 19 to be exact, and of course they were all dismissed. And because he was somewhat intelligent, he became what they call a jailhouse lawyer. You probably can figure out what that is, but if you don't, I'll explain it to you. In every jail and prison, they have a law library. They have to. It, it's the actual law. And Defendants are allowed to go in there and do research in all the law books and write their own briefs, appeals, etc., you know, official court documents. And you can always tell ones that are written by defendants in jail because they're usually written in pencil on regular old notebook paper. And yeah, I've seen a lot of them. And But anyway, according to the law, you don't have to be a lawyer to file any kind of 
things like this with the court. You can just be any old person and you can literally do it on a notebook paper with a pencil. And some defendants who are kind of knowledgeable or at least smarter than the average inmate become jailhouse lawyers and they write up stuff for other defendants and they usually require some kind of payment. Knowing him, I'm sure he didn't do it for free and that payment's probably either money to use for commissary things or food or cigarettes or illegal drugs or even sex. But knowing him, it was probably money. I did allude to the fact earlier that when he was in prison, he started a hobby. A lot of people do. When they are in prison for the rest of their life, they think, well, I'm going to be here for a long time. I might as well find something to do. And of course, he continued his writings. Um, some people become artists. Uh, they can paint, draw. A lot of people become avid readers. The more um, I guess you could call it civically minded inmates act as teachers to teach other inmates how to read and write and that sort of thing. Well, you know, this dude ain't doing nothing civic minded. So one of the new hobbies he got was suing people. Remember that suing means simply taking to court. It doesn't mean necessarily that you win. And fortunately, he didn't win any of these lawsuits. But here are the main people against whom he filed suit. True crime writers Colin Wilson, Michael Newton, and special agent of the FBI Robert Ressler for saying that Schaefer was a serial killer. And on the subject of FBI agents, Schaefer was interviewed by Bill Haggerty of the FBI, and he studied him for the VICAP program in the early 80s. And later on, he said that Schaefer was, quote, one of the sickest. If I had a list of the top five, which would include all of the serial killers I have interviewed throughout the country, he would definitely be in the top five, end quote. So that's from somebody who's talked to probably hundreds of violent people. His ex-attorney, Schwartz, remember the guy who married his wife? I would have loved to have seen the look on his face when Teresa came in to see him in prison and handed him the divorce papers and said, I'm marrying your attorney. That that would have been worth watching, definitely. And he sued Patrick Kendrick. That's the author of the book that I've been telling you about because he described him in his book as, quote, an overweight, doughy, middle-aged man who preyed on victims who were psychologically and physiologically weaker than him, end quote, which is true. There's no lie there. But he must have had a real hard-on for Patrick because he sued him three different times. And all of the lawsuits, except for Patrick's, were, were dropped. And Patrick's lawsuit was still ongoing at the time that Schaefer died. In 1987, he finally got in front of a judge who said, quote, there has to be an end, a conclusion to litigation and to the abuse of the judicial process. The defendant should realize once and for all, the die is cast, the mold is made, and the loaf is baked. Therefore, the judgment is final and forever, end quote. In layman's terms, that's it. I've had enough of your bullshit. You've wasted enough of the court's time. 
which of course Schaefer didn't care. Remember, this is a violent predator. And now that he's in prison, his only way to prey on people and victimize people is by doing things like suing them. And we're going to see a couple other ways. I mentioned Patrick Kendrick numerous times before. I listened to a podcast that he was a guest on, and the name of it is Most Notorious. The episode date is March 28th of uh, 2021, which is last year, and the guy interviews Patrick, and he talks about meeting Schaefer and what happened afterwards and the consequences and such. I usually don't use other podcasts as a source, but this time I've been an exception because it's the actual author on there and he gives so much information. So I'm going to put the name of the podcast in the episode date in the notes so that you can listen to it if you want and definitely read Patrick Kendrick's book if you're interested, because like I said, it is the definitive work on Schaefer. Now, how this came about, Patrick Kendrick, I think, was given the idea, but he was already an author of fiction, and somebody said to him, hey, you're familiar with this guy, with this case, because you live in this area. Why don't you do something about Gerard Schaefer. So Patrick wrote to him in prison and asked to come in and interview him. And he said about, um, you know, all of his bullshit, like, you know, I didn't do anything. I was framed by the police and the DAs. I was fired by Wilton Manors because they were corrupt. This one's a quote. I did not have anything to do with mass murder except in my capacity as a writer of bizarre fiction. End quote. And quote, I possess a clean bill of mental and emotional health from the Department of Corrections. End quote. And another one. I have passed a number of lie detector tests during 1983 and have written verification that I am cleared in most of the crimes that Robert Stone continues to accuse me of. The thing about the lie detector tests, first of all, you can't believe anything that comes out of his mouth. But I think we know or most of us should know that, psychopaths can pass those. So that doesn't really mean anything. Then Schaefer said, quote, The case is one of speculation, innuendo, hypothesis, and a public clamor generated by newspaper horseshit, end quote. Then he would try to prove his case. And the case I'm talking about is the one ones for which he was convicted, the murder of Susan and Georgia. He brought this item up as a point in his favor. He said that Susan's body was found wearing jeans, but her mother said in her deposition that she left home wearing, quote, blue-green hip huggers. Um, for one thing, jeans and blue-green hip huggers are... I can't even, I don't even know what hip huggers are, some kind of pants. So close as to be indistinguishable. And he's like an octopus. You know how they get mad and they squirt ink and it's it's like a defense mechanism. If he's cornered or somebody brings up a point, what he did was just squirt out a load of his bullshit and it obfuscates the uh, the subject, which is just what he did there. Then... He's still talking about Georgia and um, Susan. 
He says, quote, while it is true that the bodies were dismembered, a careful reading of the ME's reports will show that neither, neither body was subject to genital mutilation common to sex murder by knife, end quote. Again, note the passive tone, neither body was subjected. In pretty much everything he says, he uses that tone. And that's another blowing out of ink is what that is. The bodies being dismembered and whether or not they were generally mutilated, one doesn't have anything to do with the other one. It doesn't make him any less guilty if they were or weren't sexually mutilated. Again, it's just stirring up bullshit. Plus, I really think he enjoyed talking about things like dismemberment, beheading, mutilation, such and such. And any excuse to bring up this topic, he was always all over that. One thing that's weird that uh, in his letters and statements and such, he talked about himself in the third person, which is something that schizophrenics do. And when we get to psychology, we'll see that a couple people did diagnose him as schizophrenic. Whether or not he really was, we'll never know. But he did talk about himself in the third person, which is certainly strange. And he brought up his roommate, poor old John Dolan again. Remember, he blamed him for planting somebody's teeth among his stuff. Well, he blamed him for killing Lee and Carmen, which totally doesn't make any, any sense. But he is not about sense. He's, he's never let logic or common sense or anything like that get in the way of anything that he says. Now, remember how I told you? That even though he's in prison, it's not going to stop him from being a pain in the ass. In 1983, he got, got hold of investigators and told them that a fellow inmate named Eric Cross was running a child porn operation with it, from within the prison, which supposedly resulted in the seizure of thousands of pictures of children in nude or pornographic poses. And this really did happen. This, uh, I guess you want to call it a bust. It resulted in at least four people being charged and or convicted. Supposedly, this Eric Cross, and you know how I have to use the word supposedly because you can't believe anything he says. Supposedly, this Cross told Schaefer about an operation that they called Viewfinders Incorporated. And he said, well, in order for us to do this, we need a phone line. I don't know any of the details of this. I can't really explain this. So what Schaefer did, and this, this is true, he ropes his dad into this deal. And he puts his dad on a conference call with himself and this Eric Cross dude and somehow transmitted this porn or images or I don't I don't know how it worked so I'm not going to pretend that I understand how that worked this was 1983 so his dad later claimed that he was unaware of the true nature of what was actually going on and that's up to you if you want to believe that or not but I guess supposedly he got suspicious when his phone bills were between 200 and 400 dollars a month and he was probably like yo jerry 
what the fuck is up with this? So the question is, was he trying to set up this Eric Cross just for fun? Because that's what he did. Or was he really in on this child porn thing? Knowing him, either way, is totally believable. In August of 1985, he was sentenced to the maximum security prison in Stark, Florida, for planning an escape with another prisoner and planning to kill some people. Supposedly, he had a hit list of people that he either wanted to kill himself or have somebody else kill them. And these people included his old attorney, Elton Schwartz, and his new wife, Teresa, state's attorney, Robert Stone, and chief circuit judge, Trowbridge. I don't know who the inmate was with whom he planned to escape. And I have no idea how people found out that he was planning to escape. Like, how far along was this plan? Was it just something they talked about? Or was it, like, a more concrete, did they actually write it down? Or, you know, what all did they have planned? So I'd be curious to know those details. And he had quite the imagination. I don't know where he came up with some of that shit. Well, I guess he fancied himself a writer. And even before, remember earlier when he was in college, he took creative writing courses. So he probably does have some genuine talent as a writer. And he might have made something of his life with writing as a career if he hadn't turned out to be such a murdering psychopath. But he had this delusion that prosecutor Robert Stone was part of a drug ring and he would tell whoever was willing to listen that that was why he was convicted of these two murders was you know all of these prosecutors and cops and so forth were part of this drug ring and then this poor guy Patrick I told you he took him to court three times he sent him threatening letters and one of them said, quote, I know you are married now, and I'd hate to see anything happen to your wife and family. I have many followers who are willing to do my bidding, end quote. So Patrick's wife just about shit bricks when she saw this come in the mail. And he also, Schaefer also, I don't know if this was through the mail or a phone call, and I'm sure this is bullshit, but this is just the type of person he was. He told Patrick that he had some associates out there that could kidnap his daughters and sell them into slavery. He had this recurring theme about sex slaves and selling people into slavery. Remember, he would tell that to his victims. I mean, he, he's got these, like, topics or obsessions that he always returned to. I want to take a break for a minute and talk about Workbox. As you know, as I'm sure I've mentioned a few times, Nathan and I love Workbox. He gets it once a month, about the middle of the month, and as soon as I bring it in the house, he starts jumping around and barking. I don't know if he can read because it says Workbox on the side, but I open it and it always has the cutest toys. And each month has like a theme. Like, for example, what was last month? Oh, treats. It had um, an ice cream cone. It was like in two parts. Like one was the scoop and the other part was the cone. And there was um, two other toys. And I open it and I take the, uh, like the tags off the plastic things so you won't chew them. And then I put it down 
and let him root into it. And it's just so cute. And then he'll take out each toy, run around with it and play with it. Then he'll go back and get another one and repeat, repeat. And if you go on my show notes and click the link that I have to BarkBox and sign up for BarkBox through that link, you get a free whole month of BarkBox for you and your dog or dogs. So we talked about cute things for a minute and we're back to talking about disgusting things like Gerard Schaefer. Remember his girlfriend Sandy from high school? Well, she had reinvented herself now and she now called herself Sandra London. You may be familiar with that name. And we could do a whole episode just about Sandra. But to give you the basics, she read the book. You may have read it also. It's a very popular true crime book, The Stranger Beside Me by Anne Rule. And it's about Ted Bundy. Remember how, well, if you're not familiar, I'll just tell you briefly. Anne, for a while, worked on a suicide crisis helpline. And Ted worked on that with her, which is so ironic. You know, a serial killer working on a suicide hotline. But anyway, she knew him and she wrote a book about it, along with many other great true crime titles. So Sandra thought, hmm, you know, I went out with this serial killer in high school and I know him really well. And I think she kind of got dollar signs in her eyes, if you know what I'm talking about. So she decided to reach out to Jerry. Well, she always called him John. So she wrote him a letter and it said, do you remember me? I'm a writer now. And he said, of course I remember you. And according to her, he goes into all this bullshit. Like, I always loved you, blah, blah, blah. And she's interviewed on a podcast, another podcast that I have to give a shout out to. And it's called True Murder with my friend Dan Zupanski. And every week he interviews another true crime writer about a book of theirs. It's a really good podcast. But this particular episode was from January 13th of this past year, which was my birthday. He interviewed Sandra and she talked about her relationship with John, as she calls him, in this book. And she has some real interesting things to say. She said that when they were teenagers and they were going out, they would go to cemeteries and hang out. And he would talk about, I wonder what kind of physical state the bodies were in. Like, you know, I wonder what they look like now. And she said that he went to church seven days a week. And uh, I don't belong to any organized religion, so I don't go to church. But I think that's a little excessive. Correct me if I'm wrong. And she recalled that when he was like 17, he used to talk to her about plans that he made in his head for how to get rid of women's bodies. And he, you know, since he lived near the Everglades, he thought, well, it's, this is a perfect environment. You just have to put them in the swamp and the alligators would take care of them in no time. I mean, he's 17 and he's thinking this shit. So he would write stories for her and you know what kind of stories he writes. She said, quote, he creates this appalling, shocking, disgusting scenario that appeals to his perversions and it hurts to read it. End quote. She thinks that the writings are good only for people who are trying to learn about pathology, like psychology and what makes people tick. And I would have to agree. That 
and unless you're a sadist yourself. The stories are about torture and murder from the killer's perspective, and interestingly, the killer is usually a quote-unquote rogue cop, and she's one of many people who said that, quote, he was obsessed with defecation, and she said that she told him, John, we're adults. Nobody wants to read about pee and poop. Just quit it. And then he would go and work it into the plot in a way that it wasn't gratuitous, but it was like central to the plot. I don't know what kind of plot that you need poop in, but uh, he, you know, that's what he did. And he would write these stories and she would compile them. She would be like the editor and the books published in her name. It's called Killer Fiction by Gerard John Schaefer, as told to Sandra London. And the sequel, which she put out after he died, is called Beyond Killer Fiction. And she said she's working on another one called Killer Facts, which is like a, I guess you would call a true crime book about him. Then she said he created a character named Crystal. And in the guise of Crystal, he would write to death row inmates all over the country. And he claimed that he belonged to some group that was trying to hasten people's execution. Which, well, I was going to say how bizarre, but look who we're talking about. And she said, quote, He tried so hard to shock me and disgust me. What he had written was vile, absolutely vile, end quote. There's a story called Murder Demons that is supposedly about how he killed Mary and Elsie. And an interesting sentence he told Sandra, You want confessions, but you don't recognize them when I anoint you with them. And quote. Notice the use of the word anoint. He is anointing somebody with something from him. And that's, I think, what you would call a God complex. She also said that he liked to say he was the greatest serial killer of women in this century. And he bragged that he had killed between 80 and 100, which there's absolutely no way to, to prove that. A guard at the prison got hold of his stories and read them. He called it pornographic filth and confiscated it as contraband, quote, unsuitable for a prisoner. One of the more bizarre things about him was one minute he would say that he was framed, he was innocent, he never killed anybody, blah, blah, blah. And in the next sentence, he would say that he was like the greatest serial killer ever. He told Sandra in one of the letters, quote, I let Satan get control of me. I hated evil. I wanted to destroy evil. I went and immersed myself in the battle but destroyed myself in the process. God saved me by allowing me to be framed by corrupt people. My battle has been to overcome the problem of serial murder. I believe I have accomplished this through Jesus Christ. End quote. If anybody can make any sense of that, let me know, because I sure as hell can't. And she went on to say about how at 17 he would, uh, would talk about how he would dispose of corpses. And she said that he always had this slogan that he was always saying that, that went, no body, no crime. And supposedly he said this to Pam and Nancy, the living victims, the ones that he tied to the trees. Interestingly, Sandra says that she doesn't think he killed Susan and Georgia. Those were the two he was convicted of. 
She said it wasn't his M.O. There were cigarette butts found there, like at the crime scene, and he didn't smoke. Their bodies were mutilated and thrown into the sand, which is not his usual hanging by tree thing. And she thinks that he didn't get a fair trial. And he was, I don't know if they were delusions, like he actually believed this shit, or he just had, he just liked to make shit up. I'm, I'm thinking the second one. But in one letter to her, he wrote, quote, I am factually a captain of the Dixie Mafia. I have factually the power to have you killed. I have in the past used these powers, end quote. And then he said, quote, I am a syndicate man. When I put on my mob sub-chief's hat, I am Dom L. Tigra, and I can scare the living shit out of you, end quote. In 1991, he said, I am the top serial killer and I can prove it. He said he was quote, an expert hangman killing, quote, so quickly that they wouldn't even pee on the rope, end quote. There's, see, there's a mention of the pee again. Then he said, quote, I never at any time required more than two strokes to behead a woman. Never. I was absolutely skilled at it, end quote. And in, in another very charming sentence, quote, one whore drowned in her own vomit while watching me disembowel her girlfriend. I'm not sure that counts as a valid kill. Did the pregnant ones count as two kills? It can get confusing, end quote. So he's, in his ramblings, he's in the mafia, and he's in child porn, or either in them or busting them up, or... You know, he's this and that, and he has all these associates who can hurt people's family, and he would threaten Sandra later. I don't know what, oh, yeah, I do know what she did to piss him off. He threatened her by saying that he had friends on the outside who could get her daughters and sell them into sex slavery. Because, you know, he has all of these connections with people in the sex trade. At one point, Sandra and John were engaged very briefly. I don't know what their plans were, but yeah, that happened. And Sandra dumped him for another prisoner in the uh, state prison that I guess she found more charming. And that would be serial killer Danny Rowling, also known as the Gainesville Ripper. So in February of 1993, Sandra went to Stark to visit Danny Rowling for a new book project, and she found him, quote, really quite wonderful, and soon they got engaged. So Schaefer heard about this from the prison grapevine, and he wrote to her, like, as soon as he found this out, and the letter goes, quote, hello, whore. The word on the yard is that the queen of the sluts was romancing Danny Rowling. Valentine, you're mine. Mine is underlined. I know what you're up to. Money. Money's underlined. You're going to get Danny boy fried while you make a buck off his misery, right? Well, go for it. Just make sure you keep my name out of it. End quote. And then he went on to threaten her with reprisals from all his connections with the Klan, the Satanists, the Mafia, etc., etc. This, I think, triggered him because he thought he had Sandra under his control and then she dumped him. 
Then he set off a bunch of lawsuits. He wrote her a letter that said, quote, I will tell you here and now that plenty of your women died because you couldn't help me solve my various crises in 1965. I tried to tell you about it, but you couldn't deal with it. You bolted, abandoned me. That's when it started, end quote. So what he did, he just blamed his whole murderous career on the fact that Sandra didn't want to listen to his ramblings and dumped him back in the 60s. This is the definition of somebody who blames somebody else for their problems and can't, can't take responsibility for what they do. So in March of 1991, the prison officials started intercepting mail between Schaefer and Sandra. And in May, they discovered some outlines for new stories. They considered it contraband, filed a disciplinary report, and he got 30 days in solitary for, quote, conspiring to conduct a business from his cell, end quote. Then he wrote to Sandra, we're through, and he said, quote, you've tapped a black hole of genuine rage and it's focused on you. Just never speak my name to anyone, anywhere, ever again. I've met a number of people from the Satanists underground. To express my appreciation for what you said, I've explained to them about your daughter. They'll probably get in touch with her personally. If you want to make an issue of this, then the kid is going to be the one to pay the tab. Am I clear? End quote. And soon afterwards, he wrote, I'm poised to sue everyone. I may not win, but I'll break everyone's bank and make the lawyers richer. And she's already broken up with them quite a while ago, so... What did she do this time to, to um, incite his rage? Well, she made the circuit of TV talk shows talking about him and her new love, Danny Rowland. She appeared on Larry King, Geraldo, Lisa, and A Current Affair. And I saw a clip of her. If you want to see this, it's on YouTube, on Geraldo. And this is quite entertaining. Geraldo's there asking her, you know, can you explain to us what it is that you find attractive about Danny Rowling? Because at this point, she was engaged to him. I don't know if she still is or not. And he keeps asking her like five times pointedly, do you love him? Do you love him? And every time she just dances around the question, she just won't answer it, which is kind of kind of suspicious. She said she, quote, worked with him for six months before they fell in love. And she said, fate brought a serial killer into my life. And she went on to say that she studied four serial killers in depth and that she thought, in her opinion, in each one of these, there was a multiple personality present. Now, we obviously know Schaefer and Danny Rowling. I have no idea who the other two are, but she's written several books. And if you're so inclined, just put her name into Amazon and they'll all come up. But she wrote the two about Schaefer. She's written two on Danny Rowling. And from what I understand, they're more of like biographies about him. I guess more of the true crime type of factual book. Whereas with this asshole Schaefer, it's like his stories, writings, poems, and drawings. 
And I was real fascinated to see if I could get in a peek into either one of these books. But I think I mentioned, maybe I didn't, I'm losing my mind. They're both out of print, but you can get them used on Amazon anyway. And the first one, Killer Fiction, is on Kindle for $18. First of all, I would never pay that much money for a Kindle book. And second of all, I don't know who exactly would get the money for it, but I have a feeling it's somebody that I don't want my money to go to. But if you're interested, the first one is called Killer Fiction by, it's under her name, Sandra London, and the second one is Beyond Killer Fiction. Now, you know how he likes to sue everybody. Well, he ended up suing Sandra three separate times. They would all be dismissed. And he, <laughs> so ridiculous. He tried to have her arrested for, quote, stealing literary works valued in excess of $110,000, end quote. First of all, it's hysterical if he thinks his shit is worth that much, but it's ridiculous. She had to file for a protection order, which included 500 pages of his death threats and murder confessions. So he was barred from writing to Sandra. Then he wrote to her publisher. This is 1993. And he, he referred to a fellow convict as, quote, an anointed fourth prince of the hand of death, end quote, and said, quote, all I need to do is ask this gentleman to have Sandra London and her kid murdered, and it would be done. Sandra London is alive at this moment because I choose to allow it, end quote. Who does that remind you of, anybody? Anointed fourth prince of the hand of death. I Really don't think that there's any such thing that that sounds something like Anders Bering Breivik would call himself, doesn't it? In November of 1994, he was attacked in the law library, was stabbed in his face, body, and hands. And th this is like a soap opera, prison soap opera. Danny Rowling told Sandra that he, Danny supposedly knew about this, that Schaefer was labeled as a rat and pain freak and a mani manipulative snitch. And over the next year, he would have convicts throw poop and pee on him. And three times, they set his cell on fire. I think this is the only case that I've done, or at least that I can remember, where the subject has caused almost an equal amount of trouble, if not more, in prison than outside of prison. So in 1995, December, December 1st, to be exact, Fort Lauderdale homicide detectives decide to reopen the Carmen Halleck, Lee Bonadies, and Benita Hutchins cases based a lot on the, the uh, material from these books because they were going to try to prosecute Schaefer for, for these ones too. So they called the prison on Friday, December 1st, and arranged to sh visit Schaefer on that Monday. Well, Monday comes, and the prison calls the investigators, and they're like, um, you might as well cancel that visit because Schaefer was stabbed to death in his cell yesterday. So that's sort of a happy ending. On Sunday, December 3rd, 1995, corrections officers found Schaefer dead in his cell, stabbed 42 times on his head, neck, and eyeballs, with his throat slashed. There was even a bloody handprint on the wall. And the killer was his cellmate, 33-year-old Vincent Rivera, 
who was serving a life sentence for killing two people in Hillsborough County, which is like the Tampa area. Supposedly, they got in an argument after Schaefer took the last cup of hot water from a hot water dispenser to make coffee. But in 1996, Rivera wrote to Sandra London claiming that the bloody handprint didn't match him or Schaefer. So again, here comes another conspiracy. Schaefer's mother and sister accused Otis Toole, remember him, and they claimed that Otis was threatened by Schaefer's efforts to help the Walsh family recover Adam Walsh's remains. Otis Toole, of course, denied this. So in 1999, Rivera was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to an additional 53 years and 10 months. Wow, I told you this was like a soap opera. And finally, we get into psychology. And as I told you, he did see several psychiatrists and psychologists throughout his life. And I have some of what they said. So I won't bore you with all the details that all of them said. So I'm just going to go over the highlights. When he was in college, if you remember me mentioning, he told his creative writing professor that he had homicidal urges. And this professor referred him to a counselor who then referred him to a psychiatrist, a Dr. McCormick, who gave him a bunch of psychological tests. He found him to be immature, with poor ego control, aggressive and rebellious. And he said that he had a, quote, intense father conflict. He also said, quote, his personality dynamics incline him to blame others for his own difficulties. He is extremely confused in terms of self-image and is alienated from himself and others. However, he does have a capacity to relate to others and is approachable in a therapeutic relationship. At this point, John's own resources are not sufficient for a solution to his problems, and he is in need of supportive therapy, which would ameliorate the severity of his symptoms. End quote. The date on that is 1970. And I'm not sure, but if we go by what he says, which, well, you really can't, he had already killed somebody by that. And I did mention before what's unusual about Schaefer is that he realized that there was something wrong with him, and he did seek help. Now, this is just pure speculation, of course, and there will never be any way to know this, but if he would have listened to these people and got into therapy, maybe taken medication of some kind, would he have kept on killing people? There's absolutely no way to know that. This doctor found no evidence of excessive depression or suicidal tendencies, and he diagnosed him with a characterological neurosis with paranoid trait overlay. I don't think characterological neurosis is anything that is recognized today. Today, we would call that a personality disorder. He saw a psychiatrist named Dr. Long until May of 1971. And these interesting little details came out at some point in his therapy. He said that when his father was away on business, remember he was a traveling salesman, so he would often go away on business, little Jerry would crawl in bed with his mom and sleep with her up until he became a teenager, which I don't think is normal or healthy. 
Then, uh, apparently one time his parents were having one of their frequent arguments, and it came out that he was the product of an affair that his mother had had. So his father was not his biological father. In his view, his mother was to blame for his dad not loving him. She was a whore, slut, and from there he reasoned that women were a source of betrayal. And this psychiatrist said that his killings represented a continuous matricide in which each time he killed a woman, he was fantasizing about killing his mother. I know that sounds like generic serial killer psychology, but it's also true. Sandra herself said that he suffered from the Madonna whore syndrome. And perhaps you may have heard of this Madonna whore syndrome. If not, I'll explain to you what it means. It started out being kind of a Freudian edible thing where men supposedly fantasize about having sex with their mothers. But recently, psychologists and people in the mental health field have conducted studies, and they found that there really is something to this. The Madonna Horse Syndrome says that women are either good, chaste, and pure, meaning like the Madonna, or bad, seductive whores, which would be the whore side. Feminist theory thinks that this is caused by the desire to reinforce the patriarchy. And our society is set up, unfortunately, still as a patriarchy. And I read about an Italian study. I know it's just one study, but it was interesting. It supported the idea that patriarchal arrangements have negative implications for the well-being of both women and men. And in other words, the old so-called Madonna War Syndrome. And one of his, I think it was the same psychiatrist, said that he both loves and hates his mother. After he was arrested, he went through various psychological testing, and he saw Dr. Eaton who noted that Schaefer was preoccupied with death from a young age. Apparently, he got excited when he dreamed of killing people. He liked to draw gory pictures, which excited him. And during the interview, he cried and had difficulty concentrating. And this doctor said, quote, He's definitely depressed, partly as a reaction to the present situation, being in jail. The defendant has been ruminating about suicide. It is my opinion that he is definitely depressed and potentially suicidal, end quote. And he recommended that he be sent to the state mental hospital in Chattahoochee. That's very typical of what happens when somebody's going through the criminal justice system. At, at least in my career, I saw this. They would have an interview with what was called our behavior clinic, like a psychiatrist there. If they were found to be not fit to stand trial, they would be sent to our state mental institution and treated and then reevaluated every so many days. If they were eventually found to be now stable enough to go to trial, then they would. In some cases, they were never found to be fit. They, like they were permanently either schizophrenic or psychotic. Or These are the people that ended up in the hospital like for years and years. Then Schaefer saw a Dr. Gianni who said pretty much the same thing, but noted that he had the, quote, ability to judge women 
that should be eliminated for the welfare of society, end quote. And of course, in his terms, that would be sluts and whores. Interestingly, the DA in the case thought that Schaefer was trying to act sicker than he was, or malinger, or in layman's terms, fake. And I'll tell you what I think of that later on. And Dr. Gianni said, quote, Sometimes he has an inappropriate smell in describing criminal fantasies that he wrote about or when he was referring to killing those people, end quote. He had an inappropriate affect, like smiling and laughing when recalling sadomasochistic thoughts. But he found him to have no thought disorder. And this is important because if somebody's diagnosed with schizophrenia, that's mainly a thought disorder. It means your your thoughts are like scrambled, kind of like vegetable soup, like a bunch of things that just don't make sense. And that is important to note. I recommended earlier, I think, that you go on if you want to see this dude. And he's he's really something to see. There are some prison interviews with him on YouTube. Just go on YouTube and type Gerard Schaefer. And he's has this creepy-ass grin the whole time he's talking. And this strange, it, I mean, the, the smell's like planted on his face for the whole time. No matter what he's talking about, he has this almost maniacal twinkling eyes. I don't know how else to put it. And a smile and a laugh. And he says the craziest things. He's talking about himself. Almost like it's a personal ad or something. He's like, I'm a romantic I give women flowers, and I'm like, oh my god, is that before or after you hang them to a tree? The psychiatrist went on to say that, quote, when he sees a prostitute on the street, he feels the urge to destroy her and usually will convert this feeling with the practice of a whole S&M ritual to the point that he will dress himself as a woman, will tie himself to a tree, and punish himself this way, most of the time reaching orgasm, end quote. And apparently he carried around rope and whatever other materials he needed for this type of business around in his car if he ever felt overwhelmed with the need to go through this ritual. And then he claimed that he couldn't remember certain, I guess, killings. He couldn't remember if he actually did them or if he thought about them, or wrote about them. And it was this confusion, or apparent confusion. Notice how I say apparent, because, like I said before, you can't believe anything he says, that caused um, some doubt about his sanity. He saw somebody named Dr. Ogburn in June 1973, and he said that he heard voices telling him to kill, and that he killed and committed necrophilia on animals. This doctor diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia and considered him, quote, a very dangerous person, end quote. No shit. And here comes another interesting bit from his childhood. When his dad was away on one of his frequent business trips, Schaefer's mother would find notes, either on her bed or somewhere in her bedroom, that said that she was going to be killed. And she'd always thought that her son, precious little Jerry, did it. And she would be right. This psychiatrist noted that the defendant had the feeling that he was a third person looking at himself. This is called dissociation. 
And I just want to tell you what this means in case you don't know. It's defined as a state of feeling or being disconnected. And in extreme cases, it can lead to multiple personality disorder, nowadays called dissociative identity disorder, or DID. You know how the personality is so traumatized by an event that it kind of breaks off and creates separate personalities. And this reminds me a lot of both Ted Bundy and Kenneth Bianchi, who, in case you don't know who that was, was one of the two so-called hillside stranglers. They both studied psychology, and they both tried to fake crazy. And Bianchi was so good, he pretended to have multiple personalities. He was so good at this that he actually fooled an expert. And keep that in mind. I brought that up for a reason. So Schaefer claimed that he would have blackouts, like he would uh, come to somewhere, not know how he got there. And that certainly sounds to me a lot like somebody pretending to have multiple personality disorder. He was found to have an early evidence of bizarre sexual acting out and was diagnosed with a psychotic illness. Remember, psychotic means not in touch with reality. Then he saw a Dr. Cook who felt that Schaefer was, quote, exaggerating some of his symptoms, unquote. And he went on to say that he is bright enough to do so effectively, which is pretty much my thoughts. Then Schaefer saw a neurologist, and this is quite interesting. When he was 20 years old, he was hit on the right lower head with a two-by-four. don't know the circumstances of that, but he, apparently he was not unconscious, but, quote, dazed for several minutes, unquote. Then he said that he had episodes of amnesia over time, lasting from a few seconds to a whole day. He had hundreds of psychological tests. The Rorschach, you know, the inkblot, thematic apperception test, MMPI, word association. I'm not going to go through all of them. I think you pretty much know what I mean. Interestingly, in the MMPI, the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, it asks you like hundreds of yes or no questions. You know, have you ever done this? Have you ever thought this? Blah, blah, blah. And it puts you in different like categories. I've never taken it, but I do know this. He scored high in paranoia, psychopathy, and schizophrenia. And there's supposed to be a built-in thing in the MMPI that you can't fake it, but I'm sure that you you could fake it. So what are my thoughts on him? Well, my disclaimer, of course, I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist. I have no training. It's just my own opinion. I've never met him, fortunately. But I find it interesting how he seems to have had all these doctors convinced that he was either psychotic, schizophrenic, and had blackouts. To me, and I'm, this is just my own personal opinion, of course, knowing what a lying sack of shit he was, this looks very much like somebody trying to pretend that they're crazy. He said he heard voices telling him to kill, and then I think he was trying to fake multiple personality disorder with the, uh, you know, the, the dissociation thing and the loss of memory. And, you know, I've blacked out and I, I woke up somewhere. That's called losing time, by the way. And um, 
I would call bullshit on all that. But, I mean, these these people were the professionals. So, who really knows with him? He The thing that stands out the most about him is the, and I mentioned this before, overwhelming obsession with hanging and also with poop. And I'm not the first person to notice that. Sandra London mentioned the thing with poop. Somebody else that read his stories commented on it. Like, geez, dude, what is with the poop stuff? I definitely agree with the psychiatrist who said about the Madonna horse syndrome that he had a healthy, loving view of his mother until he found out that he himself was the result of an incestuous relationship. And then he was like, oh, fuck her, she's a whore. And I also agree that when he was killing all of his female victims, that he was symbolically killing his mother. He apparently has a paraphilia. And you know what that is, a um, atypical sexual practice that usually is in some way unhealthy or has the risk of harm to self or others. He would have what you call asphyxiophilia, and that would mean sexual arousal from asphyxiating or hanging. Now, you probably know what autoerotic asphyxiation is. It's when you do that to yourself, you know, hang yourself. And we know he did this when he was very young. It's the intent, intentional restriction of oxygen to your brain. And supposedly... I've certainly never tried it and certainly never will. Supposedly when your brain is hypoxic or low on oxygen, it gives you kind of like a high or a euphoric feeling, but it can also lead to death. And another term for it is breath play. It is a form of BDSM. And in BDSM, you have a dominant and a submissive. And the dominant person, if you were doing this breath play thing, the dominant would be the one who was choking or hanging the submissive. And of course, that would be right up his alley because he would want to be the one in control or the dominant. It's said that people who have this particular paraphilia also have other paraphilias like bondage and transvestism, which he also had. And I was trying to think of what it was about hanging people that really excited him. I was trying to crawl into his brain, which is quite a scary place. And this is just pure speculation. And I mean, you can think I'm ridiculous if you want, but this is what I came up with. Remember when he started doing this, he was about 12. He would, he said that very early on, he wanted to be a girl. And he would dress in girls' clothes so that his dad would like him. So he would steal his mother's and sister's underwear and probably dresses and other stuff. Dress as a girl, tie himself up, and hang himself. I'm going to go out on a limb, excuse the pun, and speculate that when he did this, he was symbolically killing the female part of himself. You know how they say, well, some psychologists say, everybody has like a male part and a female part like yin and yang. And that later when he killed women by hanging, that he was living vicariously through them and symbolically killing both the feminine part of himself and his mother. And yeah, call me crazy, but that's just what I think. 
So what kind of killer would he be? Let's go over the seven types as proposed by the FBI. Anger, criminal enterprise, financial gain, ideology, power thrill, psychosis, or sexually based. In his in his situation, I'm going to say that he actually kind of fits three of these, which is rare. Ideology, remember those are the terrorists or the mission killers. He doesn't fit this category all the way because usually these people are psychotic or have lost touch with reality. But the reason I say this category is, you know, how he kind of saw it as his mission to rid the streets of whores and sluts. So in that motive, he fits that category. Power thrill category, these people get off on the fear in their victims, which he definitely loved. And this seeing his victims squirm, literally, and seeing their fear and their humiliation really gave him a high and a, a sexual high also. And these people are usually sadistic. The sexually based killer, this kind of speaks for itself. This will be the lost murderer. And these are the people who have somehow made a connection between sexual gratification and killing. And a lot of these people are also necrophiliacs. Wow, that was a hard one. I'm glad that's over. Next week, I have another recommendation. And this is actually one I'm not familiar with at all. So I'm going to learn something too. Keep the recommendations coming. I love Winians give me them because it means that you care about what I think about something. And that's always a nice feeling to have. Thank you again for listening. These episodes are dedicated to all of the male and female known and unknown victims of Gerard Schaefer. Class dismissed.